0: All right. Well, in some ways, what I have to say today is very incongruous to everything going on and what's happening in the world. And that feels a little odd. At the same time, I kind of think that just us talking about acts is a statement of business as normal. The word's the same, the text is the same, the stuff that we do is the same. And so that's helpful. As a second thing, I have a, I have a sense of being, uh, not personally, but I have a sense that things are muted at the moment. That, that there's a kind of spiritual mute button being pressed, just, not just here, but kind of globally, because I've got a lot of ministry friends who are panicking about going online for their services, and I've got some ministry friends who are panicking about, like, if we don't have tithe for two weeks, we go under. <clears throat> and so there's, there's some fear, and there's a sense of mute about these things. And I think, um, as I listened this morning, I just want to remind you that God is not muted. But we, we might have to change how we're listening, If we're expecting the big things right now, we're gonna miss out on some of them, but we might just have to tune our ears and attune how we're listening to slightly different things, especially as I talk about the ministry of the prophetic this morning. Uh, And I think we're being given an opportunity to to think outside the prophetic box in some helpful ways, and I wanna encourage you to do that. Lastly, as kind of my last introductory pre-sermon remark, which I will go through very quickly, my second to last pre-sermon introductory (laughs) remark. Um, I I think one of the things is we we don't know what to do right now. And this is why people are buying toilet paper and not drinking Corona beer and avoiding Chinese food. And honestly, by that logic, you should not watch Tom Hanks movies. Right? So... I mean, among other things, what you should do this weekend is buy some beer, eat some Chinese food, and watch a Tom Hanks film, just to kind of stem the tide of what's going on. Uh, but I also want to invite you to step into the prophetic life in a certain way, and I'll, I'll come to that at the end. So the very last thing is to say that I, do, I have not yet to this date <laughs> delivered a properly theological sermon to KV, um, which I get to do this week, which I also have to do on shortened time this week which means we're going to blaze through Acts to Revelation, as, as, um, <laughs> as Phil said. And uh, so this may come out very quickly and very rapidly, and uh, we'll do our best to keep track with it, all right? So we're in Acts 21, and like I said, there's a departure. We're going to have some proper... I'm going to speak a little more quickly as well. We're going to have some proper theology. Um, this text is important because it relates to some core beliefs that we have as a church about the role of the Spirit, namely that He still speaks today. So I'm going to give you a brief account of the narrative after we read the text. I'm going to give you a sustained account of a theological war zone. Ooh, that's a nice word. And then I'm going to give you a brief theology of the prophetic for today and something to do. So we're going to, like, this is, we'll we'll get through it somehow. All right, Acts 21, 1 through 14, picking up the narrative of Acts where we were. And when we, Luke and the group, Luke who's writing in the group together, had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And Tyres north of Israel, in the northern part of Palestine, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered to the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we, were with, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him, that is Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since we would not, he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Okay. Sometimes I get the feeling that a lot of Paul's companions throw up their hands around him. Yeah. Well, let the will of the Lord be done, whatever, Paul. All right, briefly, accounting the narrative. Paul is on a journey that will lead to his arrest in Jerusalem. We kind of know the end of the story. He's going to be imprisoned there. He's going to make an appeal to Caesar, and he's going to have a journey to Rome where, outside the book of Acts, he will die. He's beheaded in Rome. Dr. Luke faithfully records the steps of their journey. Ports They visit people, they see churches and places they go. In Tyre, northern Israel city, they meet some disciples who, it says, through the Spirit, by means of the Spirit, told Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. They arrive in Caesarea. Caesarea is still northern Palestine or Israel. This is where Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, of course. They have a meeting at Philip the Evangelist's house. Now Philip is no spiritual slouch. Remember him from earlier in Acts? Acts. He does lots of miraculous stuff. He's got four prophetic daughters. Not one, not two, not three, but four prophetic daughters. This is an amazing thing. While he's there, Agabus comes down from Jerusalem. You always come down from Jerusalem because it's on a mountain. So you come down from Jerusalem, even though it's north on the map. And he meets them up. And we get to Acts 21, 11, where it says that, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound by his own feet and hands, and said, Agabus binds his own feet and hands, right? He's an image of this thing. This is how the, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul then shakes them off and goes on to Jerusalem anyway. Brief initial comments. One, in this passage and in the previous ones, like the one Caitlin preached last week, we have a clear foreshadowing of what is coming to Paul in the future. Suffering, imprisonment, difficulties are on their way. The foreshadowing, combined with Paul's actions, continuing to move that way, highlights his resolve and his commitment to the call of Jesus. Paul knows what's going on, and he's committed to this anyway. Third, in the background, we have echoes of Paul's conversion. So Acts 9, 15, and 16, this is the Holy Spirit, Jesus, speaking to Ananias, who's going to go and rescue Paul. Uh, Ananias, the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is part of Paul's call. Jesus is like, hey, Paul, guess what? You get to suffer for me. And now the people are like, Paul, don't suffer for me. And he's like, shut up, guys. This is my job. He kind of knows what's going on. And so we see this running throughout the book of Acts. And then fourthly, uh, Paul visits a variety of churches that, we see at, that see only part of this story of Paul's life. And Paul, because he's probably one of the most traveled persons in the ancient world, sees much more of the story. In other words, the churches who prophesy see their friend Paul and are worried about him, while Paul has his eye on something else entirely. And this gives a different perspective. He's got a sense of his call and of the greater mission, and this is how he makes his decisions. So, that's the initial comments about the narrative. That gets us connected to the next time we talk about this passage, but let's stop and discuss a theological war zone. Why is this the case? Verse 11, once again, uh, Acts, it's not up here, is Agabus's prophecy. What's going on with Agabus's prophecy? Agabus, as we know, is a pedigreed prophet. In fact, he's been mentioned before in the book of Acts in Acts 11, 27 and 28. We won't read it right now, but we'll put it up on the screen. Acts 11, 27, 28, he prophesies a famine, and they confirm this famine happened at this time. So Agabus is a known prophet with a known track record for successfully speaking what the Lord has to say to people. He's in the company of Philip, and Philip's four daughters also accomplished prophets. We're like in a spiritual hothouse in this room in Caesarea. This is like, like, hey, stuff's happening here. Let's get excited about it. And Agabus also utilizes the traditional prophetic form. When you read the Old Testament prophets, thus says the Lord of hosts, these things. And Agabus says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Which, for the record, is further evidence that from day one, the believers thought the Holy Spirit was God. From day one, they knew this was the case. And so they're already using this stuff. Okay, that's an aside. The problem is that it doesn't quite happen the way that Agabus describes it. So, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, but not by the Jews. He's arrested from the start by the Romans. In fact, uh, there's no mention then of Paul being bound hand and foot. And as far as we know, Paul is not bound with his own belt. So, does Agabus get it wrong? This then is the war zone into which we're entering, because this passage, Acts 21.11, is used both to defend and to reject the prophetic, in the church today. It is used both to defend what we do on a weekly basis, speaking the word of the Lord to one another, and to reject us as people who do these things together. So I want us to talk about this and explore it so that we have some idea of what's going on, but also so that you maybe are better equipped to understand why we do the things we do. I, going through this again this morning, am aware of how woefully inadequate this is in some ways. So you're going to get sketches and pieces, and I encourage you to ask more questions later. And we'll, I'll clarify anything we can, or Jim, or Toby, or, or even Phil might be able to. <laughs> so I made a slide, and we've got two lines of argument that come into this here, and I'm going to go through these very briefly. Hopefully you can see them. Argument A is the pro-prophetic, all right? It goes something like this. Our experience the prophetic is fallible. Right? So if I've got a word for Jim, I don't say, thus says the Lord of hosts. You're moving to, I don't know, right? When you're moving to Fife. Stoke on Trent. What? Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I, I, instead, we say things like, I feel like the Lord is saying, or maybe this is the case. And so we use cautious language when uttering prophetic words. Um, our experience is this way. Agabus is an example of fallible prophecy. Well, he spoke by the spirit. He got it sort of right. Not quite right. Therefore, our experience of the prophetic is biblical, right? Pro-prophetic argument. Acts 21.11 proves that what we do is in the Bible. Woohoo! Okay, shut. Argument B is the anti-prophetic. All prophecy is infallible. If God is speaking, how can he lie or fib or get things wrong? If it's really God, can it be wrong? Two, Agabus gets it right. It looks maybe like Agabus doesn't actually get it quite wrong, and in fact Luke doesn't seem to think he gets it wrong. We'll come back to this in a moment. Therefore, your experience of prophecy is not biblical, okay? So Acts 21:11 can be used either way, both for pro-prophetic and anti-prophetic. Let's break this down just a little bit further. In fact, I want to talk for a minute about the anti-prophetic argument for a moment. If God is speaking, how can it be false? If the Spirit can get things wrong, can we trust the Bible, which is inspired by the Spirit? Does this get it wrong? So there seems to be something big at stake in whether or not the Spirit can get things wrong. Furthermore, we have a passage like Deuteronomy 18, verses 17 to 22, where Moses says, And the Lord said to me, Moses, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Great. God's going to give us prophets. Next. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, I'll punish the people who don't listen to my prophets. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So something's at stake here, right? Like, if we're doing the wrong thing, we're supposed to die. Great. Um, and if you say in your heart How we know the Lord, uh, word the Lord has not spoken And he finishes with When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord If the word does not come to pass or come true That is a word the Lord has not spoken The prophet has spoken it presumptuously You need not be afraid of him In other words, the test of a prophet is The Lord says X, if X happens Ah, a prophet, if X does not happen Stone him, okay That's right, that's right This is the part that Phil likes Okay, um, so uh, back to the argument screen, um, we get Agabus getting it right, seems to be the argument. Uh, Paul is later arrested, he is handed over to the Gentiles. Paul and Luke have no questions about Agabus' prophecy, they don't, raise, they don't say like, Agabus sort of got it wrong, um, and then there's a few other things that come up later, and then it follows that our experience of prophecy is therefore not biblical. So I just want to highlight that there is not a little bit at stake here, in terms of how people are approaching this passage. Uh, revisiting the passage itself, I've said it twice already, I'll say it a third time. One, Luke gives no hint that Agabus might have gotten it wrong. Luke seems to think Agabus is right. Agabus' company with the other prophets and Philip's daughters seems pretty solid. Paul has later language that echoes the Agabus prophecy. Did I give you, did we put down Acts 28:17 next? We did. Uh, This is Paul speaking, three days called together local leaders. Uh, Paul says, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. That delivered is the same word Agabus preaches over Paul. So Paul later seems to think Agabus is fulfilled in terms of what I see here. And the main ideas of Agabus' prophecy are indeed correct. This is the, for the most part, it is correct. In large part, I'm, a, I'm inclined to agree substantially with the anti-prophetic argument that people make. I think they're mostly right. I don't think God double speaks. I think he tells the truth when he speaks. So uh, there's a lot I agree with, but there are some, as I think about it, some shady assumptions. Let's go to the next shady assumptions. Some shady assumptions. I should have made it shady. That would have been exciting. Maybe Alistair, if I'd given him, <laughs> I didn't give him what to do. Some shady assumptions look a bit like this. One, all prophecy foretells the future. This is the nature of prophecy. It's always foretelling. The Lord says X, X happens or doesn't happen, right? Easy one-to-one test. Two, prophets speaking by the Spirit are somehow overcome by Him. My agency is removed when the Spirit speaks through me. Uh, And this seems to be a belief about certain kinds of prophecy. And three, this is a, a really implicit assumption. Pentecost must be explained, explained away or ignored. Something has happened at Pentecost. So we're going to go back through these and talk about them for the next few moments now. Number one, prophecy as foretelling. What are we talking about here? So there is common prophetic language in the Old Testament. The Lord says, uh, thus says the Lord, X is going to happen. Uh, And if X doesn't happen, you know they weren't a prophet. Again, this is the applied logic of Deuteronomy 18. And yet, not all prophecy foretells. So I've got some examples. Some prophecy is poetry... That describes the present situation. My Israelites, you are disobedient. I've seen your shrines and your Asherah poles. I know that your hearts are hard. I know that you're going after other gods. This is not telling the future. This is describing the present pretty explicitly. There is poetry that talks about who God is. The prophets say things like, I, the Lord God, do not change. That's not about the future. Well, it is about the future because it's about every time and it's always true at all times. Or he says things I sit above the heavens looking down on the sons of men, I'm the one who sons of men. I am the one who judges the earth. This is descriptions of God's character. This isn't foretelling either. There are statements of encouragement. Do not fear. That's that's not. That's telling you to do something. That's not foretelling something either. I will rescue you. I will never abandon my people. I read this morning, I will never abandon my promise to David, my, my, uh, the house of David, he says. Well, since Jesus fulfills the house of David, God will never abandon his promise to Jesus. That's still true. Great. Uh, we get these things. Then you get moments of narrative prophecy. Uh, Nathan shows up to David and says the story about a sheep the guy stole and does some bad things. And he says, David, what would you do? The man must die. And Nathan says, you're the man and David gets, you know, the croaky moment, Uh, and that's not foretelling either. It's truth speaking. We do get some foretelling when God says, at this time, I will do this, but it's quite rare in the realm of prophecy, and so if not all prophecy is foretelling, in fact, if most prophecy is not foretelling, what on earth is prophecy? I've got my definition Here's what I think. I think prophecy is a vision of God's unchanging character spoken into changing circumstances. Prophecy is a vision of the unchanging character of God that gets spoken into changing circumstances. The circumstances are different. Things change all the time. But God's character doesn't change. And the prophet is someone who is so convicted by a vision of who God is that they get to speak that vision into the present. And sometimes it sounds like, Morag, if you don't, this is not, I, Morag doesn't have anything to do. Morag, if you don't repent, this is going to happen for you. Now, I'm not like, I don't know Morag's stuff. I don't know what's going on. But she knows that, like, yeah, well, that's the way God works, isn't it? Like, <laughs> that's true kind of for all of us. Morag, there's nothing going on. Morag. Let's, be, let's be clear. A vision of God's character, a vision of God's character that sees our present disobedience or sees the unchanging character of God who does not change, or the unchanging character of God who encourages us and enriches us and gives us a vision for his plan for all of reality. And sometimes a vision of the God who calls us out for our stuff. Um, it's It's a conviction. The prophet is someone who gets to speak with God's voice into these present circumstances. So I think that's what prophecy is. So that's number one of this. All prophecy foretells the future. Eh, No, it doesn't. Second, prophets speaking by the Spirit are overcome. So your personality fades, and then only the Spirit's voice is heard. This appears to be the kind of theology of this. There is a certain doctrine of the prophetic at work here. It comes, I believe, from combining our doctrines of inspiration with the doctrine of prophecy. So if the Spirit speaks through me, it has to speak with the same authority that it speaks through the book. Right? Right? So to claim that the Spirit speaks today is to say that we can continue to speak Scripture to one another. Now, hopefully none of you thinks that. And if you do, I have a lovely white coat for you to wear. Okay. Some people who can help you with medicines and electric shocks. Okay, so <laughs> the logic goes like this, and it's good logic. If God being God never lies, if God speaks, it cannot be incorrect, or it isn't God. That's, that's actually that's true. I think when God speaks, God speaks truthfully. It follows from this, that if we speak with God's voice today, our words should have the same authority as the Bible. And this, is, this is, seems to be a huge, a huge point for, for people who are the, the, in some of the anti-prophetics, are that our ability to speak for God should be rejected in order to preserve the unique authority of the Bible. The, the rejection of this as a way of speaking preserves the specialness of this. I think this is partly what's happening for some people. But is this how prophets work? Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.32, Paul, giving advice on how to manage the prophetic in the church, says, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, are subject to the will of prophets. In other words, that the prophet always has agency and has will, and that the will of the prophet gets intermingled with the voice of God. It seems to be the way that things are working. Prophets aren't possessed. In fact, they always retain their agency in these things. And so we get some common errors. A first common error is this. If I am filled with the Spirit, I can't help but speak what God has given me to speak. That's not true. We get a lot of people who, who think they're filled with the Spirit, and they think, I've I just got to say it now, ah! and they kind of, they blurt bur- bur- it out. No, you need to shut up <laughs> and ask for permission and ask the Spirit, am I allowed to say this? This has happened to me. I'll get words from people, and I'll say, Lord, am I allowed to say this? And he says, no, i got to shut up. It's not my job to say it until I'm given permission. The presence of the Spirit is not permission to do anything. Let me say that again. The presence of the Spirit is not permission for you to do anything. Just because you have the Spirit doesn't mean you get to serve, get to speak, get to preach, get to talk, get to encourage, get to pray. It doesn't mean those things. You've got to ask permission for all of it. So, the Spirit's prophet, subject to the will of prophets. The spirits of people who are are filled with the Spirit are subject to the will. Okay? You retain control. Second common error is this. Um, I think that we often appeal to Madame Trelawney as our model for the prophetic. All right? I think I may have said this to you before, but Madame Trelawney, if you've seen your Harry Potters, uh, she's the divina- divinations professor, right? And mid-story, she's sitting there. She's giving some benign or banal lecture on things. And her <gasps> she gets seized. And her eyes like roll into her head. And she says, the dark lord is returning. And then she comes back and she has no idea what happened. <laughs> right? Totally overwhelmed. Her personality disappears. New personality comes. Speaks something. And then uh, there's this replacement business. And a lot of people's theology of the prophetic has been shaped more by Harry Potter than by the Bible. Okay? The Holy Spirit does not possess his people. He does not possess you. He fills you. He moves you. He cooperates with you. You can reject him and resist him and squelch him, right? Or you can cooperate. And the prophetic ministry is a ministry of cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, because the personality of prophets is intermingled with the words that come out of their mouths, we get prophecies that are flavored by personality and sometimes really uncomfortably. And I think this means that there is a very uncomfortable relationship between the personality and the word that gets spoken. That means that our desires can get mixed up with our perception of God's character. And I think this is exactly what we see in Acts 21, 4. Having sought out the disciples who stayed for seven days, and through the Spirit, they kept telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That's not Paul's mission, but they're using the spirit they have to try and bend Paul to do what they want. They've made an error. And they're using the spirit to manipulate someone to do what they want. Okay? So, that's an interesting passage. Uh, The third of these shady things is that Pentecost has to be explained, explained away, or ignored. Pentecost, you remember, starts with Peter's sermon. The Holy Spirit descends. Everyone's speaking in tongues. They're prophesying. And then Peter quotes from Joel 2 in Acts 2, 17 and 18. So this is the Old Testament. Peter said, this is what you're seeing right now. In the last days it shall be. God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. All right. Pentecost questions. Does the Spirit or does the Spirit not rest on all people, right? Looks like all people. What does it mean for everyone to prophesy? What on earth does this mean if everyone's prophesying? Is this temporary or long-term, right? It's just that little flash in the pan, and now we go back to kind of private spiritual prophets, right? We do this or they're all done, I think it's important for us to realize that something important did happen at Pentecost, and we must seriously reflect on those changes. And I'll do this very, very briefly. So we're going we're to briefly talk about the Spirit in the Old Testament and the Spirit in the New Testament. I'm trying, Jim. I'm trying. Okay. In the Old Testament, the Spirit is typically, typically on one person at a time. It's on Samuel and not Eli. It's on David and not Saul. It's on one group of prophets and not another group of prophets. It's on Elijah, and then it's on Elisha, and then really weirdly, it's on Elisha's bones. And you can go read that sometime on your own and be kind of freaked out by the weirdness of that story. So the Spirit kind of hovers, it's singularly located in the Old Testament, okay, on specific people. Second, the Spirit in the Old Testament anoints a professional class of prophets. There are such things as court prophets, who hang out in the court and their job is to listen to the spirit for the king, right? And that's what they do. They're trained. Uh, They find ways to know how to hear God's voice. Elisha Elisha is trained by Elijah to know what the spirit is doing. Um, And then there's also like training for how to hear specifically. And you get this lovely story between Samuel and Eli. Eli is not hearing God anymore, but he knows what it's like. And so when Samuel hears God, Eli is able to say, this is what it's like. When you hear the voice, respond in this way. And I'll do these things for you. All right, so that's the Old Testament picture in super brief. But in the New Testament, the Spirit no longer rests on one, but on all. It's not localized, not to an elite few, but it's franchised out, okay? It's not localized by gender, age, accomplishments, or training. Because of Joel 2, we all get to prophesy if the Spirit's resting on us. Second is the Spirit, seriously, deprofessionalized. There's no longer a trained class of prophets, it used to be, I'll pick on Shin. Shin is an experienced prophet. He knows the sound of the Lord's voice. He said, 20 years of practice, knowing what God sounds like. When God speaks, Shin knows the difference between his voice and a little rumbling in the tummy, right? He knows. He knows what's going on. He knows, like, I've got a flu, and actually, I've got a convicting word, right? He knows how these things are going. He's had training, but, but, but uh, Zach clearly has... Yes. <laughs> minimum training. He doesn't, I, he doesn't know, right? He can't figure out like, well, he's, sometimes he confuses, right? He's, he's a little anxious, but he thinks it's the Lord. And so he makes mistakes. And so when you deprofessionalize, when you make the spirit an amateur business, you open yourself up to goof ups. This seems to be the liability God was willing to take when he franchised his spirit across all believers. Okay, this is part of it. We are all amateurs in prophecy. He's been deprofessionalized. Now, what this tells me in part is that the locus of God's prophetic work has shifted from professional individuals to an amateur community. And that means the authority of prophecy has also shifted. The authority has also been franchised to community. And so we discern what God is saying as a group. Not as individuals anymore. This seems to me the key change that comes together with this. Where previously a professional individual alone spoke the word of the Lord, it is now the community's job to figure out what God is saying. It is no longer I alone who hear God speak. It is we who discern the voice of God together. It's no longer professionals, anointed professionals, sanctuary professionals to whom we look to hear God speak. It's now the gathered community. If you want to know what God is saying, look around the room. The whole myth of like going alone to hear God's voice quietly, yeah, you're going to hear it more in the gather body of believers because the Spirit's franchised among us all. And guess what? If you hear something alone, you won't know if it was really God until you test it in the community. You say, I think God's telling me this. And Claire says, Jeremy, that's bonkers. (laughs) I've read the book, and that's not how God works. So we've got clear controls about these things, okay? This new community is expansive. It's we in this room. It's those who've gone before us. It's those who wrote our book. And it's those who've known the the voice of God personally in history. It gets franchised expansively. Fascinating to me, this is exactly what we see in Acts 20 and 21. Paul, with personal knowledge of the Holy Spirit... He has repeat prophetic experiences everywhere he goes. Acts 20, 22, 22, and 23. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Every city, he's getting the same message. Do you think he needs confirmation? (laughs) He knows what's going on. Acts 21.4. Uh, they con- they, uh, you don't have four. It's okay. 21.11. Uh, in verse four is when they try by the Spirit to tell him not to go. In Acts 21.11, Agabus does his business. And this means that Paul hears Agabus's prophecy in light of a wide ecclesiological witness to what God has planned. It's not one-off. He's been hearing everywhere. He's got a massive data set to work from when he makes his decision. And Acts shows us exactly what prophetic discernment looks like in the New Testament. We get a lot of information, and we make decisions based on a wide set, and we hear what God is doing. The crowd sees Paul, but Paul sees the mission. The crowd hears that Paul will be bound, and then urges him not to go. But Paul has already heard from Jesus that this is what's in store for him. Agabus hears the right word from the Lord, but it gets deployed in this case for the selfish purposes of the local church. They want to keep their pastor, and he's like, "I got another job to do." Okay, and I kind of think it might have been painful for Paul to hear the Holy Spirit used to tell him to do what he knows the Holy Spirit wants him to do against to feel that war. But again, he had enough information to make this work. All right, what can we say to wrap up the war zone? One, Acts 21:11 is not an appropriate passage for either defending or rejecting the prophetic in the church today. It's not appropriate. It's a proof text. It's too easy one way or the other, right? You can't set up text just like knock down, drag out fights for these kind of things. It doesn't work. Second, as with most complex theology, it takes complex passages to understand it. In this case, Paul's relationship to the Spirit and church over a lengthy time and a wide geographical area. This is, that's complex. We can't do this simply. Three, a thin definition of prophecy where God speaks authoritatively and clearly through one anointed scriptural individual is inadequate for Pentecost reality. Can't have a thin definition of prophecy to understand the breadth of what God is doing. And lastly, fourth, if we're going to take Pentecost seriously, we're going to have to be serious about becoming amateurs in the spirit, which means relying on others, relying on each other, uh, trusting and figuring these things out. All right. All right. In three minutes, I'm going to tell you how to be an amateur in the prophetic, okay? Just here we go. (laughs) Number one, the Holy Spirit rests as a deposit on all who believe, Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. In him you also, when you heard, you hear the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed, second verb, so you hear the word and then you believe. Some people hear and don't believe, right? You hear, you believe. The moment you believe, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, all right? The seal is a stamp, on your inner life. It marks you as God's, but it's also a deposit. It does things inside you. This Holy Spirit gives you gifts. Every believer gets gifts for the service of the church. Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. Paul says, grace gift was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is a funny verse because Paul changes the word gave from the, from the uh, Hebrew, which it actually says he received gifts from men, and I think he knows, his audience knows, knows the verse, and he's telling you that God gave you gifts. Get, guess what you're supposed to do with them? Fork them back over to God in service, okay? You've all received these gifts. He gave them. He did give them, but now he wants them back. But doesn't want them back because he doesn't want you to have them. He wants you to use them for his service. All right. So you've received the Spirit. The Spirit gives you gifts. The gifts are expected to come back in service. And then we know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews thirteen eight. Just write down. Do we skip Hebrews thirteen? We missed it. Well, Hebrews thirteen eight says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Great verse. Memorize it. Keep it in your heart. And then John sixteen seven. Jesus says to his disciples, "I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper, the Spirit, will not come to you." But if I go, I will send him to you. So the Spirit replaces Jesus as his presence with us. It's everywhere. It fits on all of us. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. The Spirit of Jesus is with us as a deposit. Because of Pentecost, the, Spirit of the, the power of the Spirit is diffused throughout the church now. So you believe, you receive Spirit. Spirit gives you gifts. Gifts communicate the presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus is diffused throughout the believers of the church. We've all got stuff and now we get to do the stuff because of this. That was very crash coursey. You could fix it all later, Jim. (laughs) Brief comments. One, God loves agency. God never seems to do directly what he can do through someone else, right? So God, he may give me a word privately, and then I get the word and encourages me. Or he might give the word to me through Caitlin. And then Caitlin tells me the word, and I say, wow, that was God. And then Caitlin goes, wow, God spoke through me. And now we praise together because God used agency to communicate his will to us. And if he wants to do it with one, how much more does he wanna do it with all of us? He's here to magnify himself. He's here to make himself look good. And he's excited about this stuff. So I wanna encourage you to give God opportunities to make himself look good. Second, nobody has everything. So we really need each other to see and know what's going on. Nobody's got it all together. Third, God is not contradictory. So we must constantly fall back on our controls, our scripture, tradition, others have heard God's voice. Fourth, the spirit of prophets is indeed subject to the will of prophets. 1 Corinthians 14.32 says this again. And interestingly, I didn't have you put 33 down, but the next verse talks about how he's not a spirit of confusion, but of peace. It's not disorder, but order. Which is why, just because the spirit's on, you don't have permission to do things. You ask permission. If you get a word in worship, where do you go? Amazingly to Zach, but... um, (laughs) Right, no, no. That's all right, That's all right, Yeah. And within this, because the spirit is subject to the will, we have to query our personal spirit, our desires, our health. What's going on? Uh, we have to. We have to ask ourselves, what's going on in me? Why do I feel this way? Right? Do I have a word for Carol because I'm mad at Carol? Right? Or is this actually the Lord? And I have to divest myself of my own stupidity all the time. Okay. All right. Good news and bad. There's no longer professional prophets. Instead, we have a community of amateurs. There is no such thing as going away to hear God speak. His voice is going to be loudest in this room and when we're together. That's where we're going to hear him best. Would you like to hear him speak today? Yeah, I do too. So before we, um, before we do this, I'm going to give you a challenge, a very brief challenge. I said I'm going to give you something to do in the midst of all this stuff. Uh, people are going to be listening for God's voice and a lot of really, really irritating people in Christianity are going to be assigning meaning to the coronavirus. God is, what is God telling us during this virus? And they're going to try and solve it because we're anxious and we have to solve problems. Don't do that. I want to encourage you to listen to the Holy Spirit specifically for people you know. So use this gift of solitude and silence to say, God, What are you saying to my brothers and sisters in the church? And then you get a chance to test it when we finally come back together and say, I think God said this to me about Rachel Cronin this week. Rachel, is that for you? And then you get to practice the prophetic during the season. I think that's a great way to go. So I've given you something you do. I didn't run this past Jim. He could edit it later, uh, and that's good. Take some time, pray. Okay, please, what, do you want to stand up? Jim, can you stand up? <laughs> Everyone else as <is> well. <laughs> All right, uh, we are going gonna to worship. We've got some time to sit in the spirit and to listen to one another, and um, if you need prayer for anything, please come forward, and members of our home groups who are trained will come forward and pray for you. Today, we will use hover hands, we will have near you. They will, uh, they will listen to you. They may elbow you. That would be all right. Perhaps elbow, elbows of the spirit. You would be good at that, Carol. I know. Um, uh, but we will, we will lift you up. And then if there's any way you want to hear from the Lord, I encourage you to come and say, just you can ask the people praying for you. I just want to know what the Lord has. Tell me if you've got anything. And let it be a test and see what happens. Sound good? Let's worship and hear from Jesus. Oh, I'm supposed to pray. Let's pray. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> Jim's got all these hand signals he gives me for things. Yeah, this was the pray hand signal. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning and for this church and the chance to be together. Um, I thank you that you, I thank you that we get to live in this beautiful secluded place where we don't really have to be afraid yet. Um... (laughs) (laughs) You are, you are Lord of this earth, and you're looking down on us, and you know our needs, and you know our fears, and you know our concerns, and you are here with us in the midst of them. And I ask that your voice would speak clearly to us in the next weeks and months, that we would use this opportunity to tune our hearts freshly to your voice in its muted spaces, in what we read, what we see, in the people you place in our hearts to pray for, and that we will not be afraid to pick up the phone and say, I think the Lord has said this to you. Is this true? We don't have to see one another face to face to operate in your spirit for one another, however much joy there is. So be present, Lord. Teach us, guide us. Show us how good you are this morning. These things I ask in your name. Amen.